Hope Church. We thank Him for the privilege to be here, uh, to worship Him, and to uh, look again into His Word. Um, and Jesus is the Word made known to us in all its fullness. And so 1 Samuel chapter 18 this morning. We're going to try our best to tackle 18 and 19, and I think we can do it. I'm going to go ahead and just say up front that there's some good stuff in here, and at the same time, um, compared, you know, it's one of those sections in the book where there's things that happen before it and things that happen, you know, after it that we may find more um, exciting or appealing or, you know, whatever. Um, but again, we go straight through books, so we don't we don't skip anything. When we go through, we we try to tackle um, all the things and all the points, even things that are are difficult and hard for us to understand. There's some things that have already been difficult that are repeated here that I'm not going to go back into a ton of detail. I'll just give a couple of reminders this morning. Um, but this is an important section, also again in the context and relationship between Saul. Um, who God said the kingdom had been taken to him, uh, taken from him, and given to another, and David, and David's the one who it's been given to, and so about their um, relationship. And so let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll pick up in First Samuel chapter eighteen. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us, your love for us. We thank you for your word. Please teach us from it. Give us greater understanding. And help us to walk according to your truth. Um, you are the only one um, who holds all truth. And so we pray, Lord, that we would uh, seek you and live by your ways. Lord, we thank you that you love us. Love us so much that you sent Jesus to the cross on our behalf. We thank you and we praise you this morning. And in Jesus, your precious name, we ask these things. Amen. So 1 Samuel chapter 18, um, two weeks ago, so last week, obviously we had Easter, you know, Sunday we took a break from 1 um, Samuel. Um, the week before, we saw um, David and Goliath and how God gave David um, triumph um, over the ju- ju- and judgment over uh, Goliath who had defied um, the Lord and, and um, had, was making a mockery of um, the God of Israel and, and those things and how um, a great victory was won that day. We talked about how we all um, have giants um, that we face in our lives uh, that need to be defeated, not in our strength, but in the Lord's strength. Um, and that the battle is, is the Lord's. And if we, we live by that and, and walk by that and enter into that. And then we ended that message where we're going to pick up this morning. Just want to reiterate this again because it's so powerful. Um, in First Samuel chapter eighteen, verses one through four, this is you know right after the battle, and it says, "Now when David had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan, that's Saul's son, the heir to the throne, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul." And Saul took him that day and would not let him go to his father's house anymore. And Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him 
and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. And so here we see that while, and we're going to see this continuously, that while Saul is trying desperately to hold on to power, to hold on to his, his kingdom, that Jonathan has it with open hands and understands that God may have a different thing for his life. And that David is going to be the one to lead Israel um, and to have this spot. And, and you know, when he takes off his robe, his armor, his sword, his bow, and his belt, he is really taking off his, his position and what is rightfully his as the heir to the throne, and he's handing it willfully all to David. It's, it's really one of the most beautiful scenes. I find it to be one of the most beautiful, powerful, poignant scenes in all of the scriptures that we have. It's just these first four verses of 1 Samuel chapter 18. Because we understand as human beings ambition. We understand ambition. We understand um, you know, even from when, if you, have, if you have siblings, you understand from when you're very little, even though this, this desire to have something and to hold on to it, or this desire to take what belongs to, to your brother or sister, and to possess it for yourself. Um, you know, we, we understand from when we're very small, this, this idea of ambition, you know, a desire to be someone, a desire to be known, a desire to be great. And, and really, I think, you know, for Jonathan, it's even amplified because, you know, he's the son of the, of the king, and there's this expectation that his ambition is not um, uh, an, an unexpected one, or it's not too lofty. It's, it's what, you know, would just rightfully be his as, you know, the firstborn son of of Saul, that this is this is his right, and so even in that ambition, it's not something that people would look at and go, "Oh, he's reaching too high." Like, no, he's just taking what's his, and instead, he just willfully hands that over to another. And we've seen already for him, it's not a lack of courage. It's not that he doesn't think he would be a good king. We've seen his, he's had victory in battles. We've seen his great courage that him with his, alone with his armor bearer, go and attack, you know, dozens of Philistines, you know, on their own. It's not that he doesn't think he could do a good job. Or that he's not adequate to the task. He's not shrinking from responsibility. He just understands who he is and who David is, and, and, and who, you know, who God decided to bless in that way. He has a life free from jealousy. And that's powerful. I just you know, want to stay there just for a minute, just to consider that our desire should be what, what God has has. Uh, desired for our lives. That's what our ambition should be. What does God want for your life? Well, that should be your ambition. You know, and, and to be faithful into whatever thing he gives you. 
whether in the eyes of this world it's small or big or somewhere in between. And, and that doesn't you know, eliminate ambition for, from us, but it's a healthy ambition. Our amb- ambition is to be on mission with Jesus. That's our greatest ambition. Our greatest ambition is to worship the Lord, to walk with Him, and to be part of making disciples for His glory. That should be our ambition. But we, we have a tendency in life, I, know, I mean, we all have this tendency, I believe, we're all you know, prone to distraction, we're all prone to put other things as our ambitions higher than God's highest ambitions for us. You know, and, and obviously, you know, we, we're complicated people. We, we, are, we deal in, in many different areas of life. You know, family, work, um, you know, what we enjoy doing with our free time, you know, these various activities that we have. But the question that, that comes back to us time and time again is what's our greatest ambition? And is that to worship the Lord, to walk with Him, and to make disciples? Is that our greatest ambition, or is it something else? And our, our greatest ambitions, you know, that's, that should, that it should be evident that the, Lord is our, that the Lord, worshiping Him, walking with Him, making disciples, it should be evident that that's our greatest ambition. It should be evident to ourselves in our prayer life, it should be evident, you know, to others in, in terms of how we live our, our lives. It shouldn't be one of those things where, um, you know, at our funeral, somebody gets up and says, you know, his highest ambition was to worship the Lord, to walk with him and to make disciples. And everybody else in the room went, huh, never knew that. I never knew that about that person. Never knew that. It should be evident. What Jonathan wants here is evident. He wants what God wants. Even at a great cost to himself. Verse 5. So David went out wherever Saul sent him. And behaved wisely, and Saul set him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Now it had happened as they were coming home, when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistine, that the women had come out from all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul, and tambourines with joy and with musical instruments. So the women sang as they danced and said, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Then Saul was very angry, and the saying displeased him. And he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed only thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul eyed David from that day forward. That celebration would cause David some, some trouble. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah, but the people, again, the people rec- have recognized that the Lord has put his hand on, on David, and that causes a jealousy. Again, it's the opposite character between Saul and his jealousy and his am- ambitions and his son, Jonathan, who is, his, who is free of jealousy and, and an ungodly ambition 
to desire to have something that God hadn't given to him. That's what an ungodly ambition is. And we need to remember that. Do we have godly or ungodly ambitions? And what might be a godly ambition for one person can be an ungodly ambition for somebody else. You understand that? It's actually right that David would desire to be king because Samuel came and anointed him and said, the Lord has given you this. So for him to have the ambition then, don't want to make that a bad word, for him to have the ambition then to be king is right. For Jonathan, if he had desired to hold on to it, would have been wrong and it would have been at his loss. That would have been his loss. It's because Jonathan had something to lose that was much greater than a kingdom. His character. And, and do we understand that? That our character, your character, my character, is more important than things we often esteem highly. Our character is, there's a higher value there. If, if you had your character, if your, your character, we would put this, we can, like, if you could make it tangible and your character is sitting on the table and there's $5 million sitting on the table next to it, but you can't, you can only pick up one. You can only pick up your character or you can pick up the money. The five million, the fifty million, the five hundred million. Put whatever number you want to on it, and your or your character. Which one do you pick up? Is there any amount that you would look at and go, "Yeah, I give my character for that." It's at your peril. It's at your peril. Because, you know, it's kind of, well, I could do a lot of good with the money and I could help a lot of people. Not without your character, you can't. Yeah. It's going to ruin you. It's going to ruin you. Not without your character. So we can't allow our personal ambitions to corrupt our character. Verse 10, and it happened on the next day that the distressing spirit from God came upon Saul. We've already seen this has happened before. Um, and he prophesied inside the house, and so David played music with his hand, as at other times. And normally that would calm Saul down, but there was a spear in Saul's hand, and Saul cast the spear, and he said, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped his presence twice. Now, we looked at that before, and just again, I'm not going to go into to everything with that, but there's a... The question mark is, you know, this distressing spirit from the, from the Lord um, can be viewed in one of two ways. One, that the Lord, you know, actively sends the distressing spirit. Um, the other is that the Lord removes his hand of protection from Saul and that the distressing spirit is allowed to do what the distressing spirit desires to do. Um, and I think you can make, you know, some case um, for, for either of those. We do know that just in general, if it's not for the restraining hand of God in the world that we as human beings would have long since destroyed and annihilated ourselves and there wouldn't be humans on this planet, period. Um, 
because man's ways are destructive. That's just, unfortunately, how it is. Um, so evil is only allowed to go so far, even though we question oftentimes why evil is allowed to go as far as it is. If we think seriously about these things. Um, and there we have to just, again, you know, have, trust God that God uh, knows what, he is, what God is doing and what he's allowing. And that's difficult enough. Um, it's difficult enough on, on its own. So here, you know, Saul, again, he tries to take uh, David's life couple of different times. And then afterward in verse 12, it says, Now Saul was afraid of David because the Lord um, was with him but had departed from Saul. And therefore Saul removed him from his presence and made him captain over a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David behaved, behaved wisely in all his ways and the Lord was with him. And therefore, when Saul, 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 they say that ten times fast, Saul, Saul, that he behaved very wisely, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he went out and came in before them. And Saul said to David, here is my older daughter Merib, I will give her to you as a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let my hand not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And so we'll stop there for a moment just to tackle a, a couple of things. Um, but, but here, you know, David, it's necessary for David to be, to be humble in these situations because he's kind of, you know, he's removed from the court. It, it even seems like um, he's demoted in his, you know, position in, in the military where he had greater control of the army to now he's captain, you know, over a, a, a thousand that there's, you know, Saul's kind of, quote unquote, putting David in his place in terms of, you know, how we would view it from a human, you know, perspective. But then the Lord is continuously with David and he has these victories. It says all Israel and Judah loved him because he went out and came in before them. He went out means he's going out into battle. And he comes back victorious. And so he's going out and he's coming in numerous times. And they, they see that the Lord is with him and that the Lord is giving David victory and that he is very skillful um, as a, a warrior and a, a leader, um, you know, a military leader. And so Saul comes to take a different approach. Like, well, I'm going to give him, I'll give him my, my daughter in, in marriage. But he says this, only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. See how people will use the Lord's name and even a, a just cause, as we've talked before about how the Philistines, you know, used to, to come in um, at the time of harvest and basically and just ravage um, Israel and, and take everything, um, you know, and leave them destitute. So we've talked about that before. And so, you know, he, he, here Saul uses this valiant, you know, cause, this righteous cause 
and uses the Lord's name even as a trap in order to try to set a trap. There's just a little lesson there. You know, don't believe everything you're being told. You know, the scripture tells us to be people who have discernment. And we see this a lot of times. You know, people will, just in general, we have to be really careful about how we use the Lord's name. And when people are using the Lord's name, um, especially in, in terms of advocating something, that we have discernment and understand the difference between the truth and lies and what is right and what is wrong, and that God is not going to you know, contradict his word. And in, in this case, it's a little trickier because there was a real battle to fight and you know, they're, they're in an active war, you know, basically. And so it's a little trickier in this text to understand, you know, for, to have the discernment to understand the intention of the heart of what Saul is telling David. But there's also some past record there. You know, the dude has tried to put him to the wall a couple of times with a spear. So it's like, maybe not everything, if somebody tries to throw spears at you, maybe not everything they say to you, you should take at face value. Just think David's smart enough to you know, understand that. The question is, are we? If somebody, you know, seeks your, your destruction or seeks bad things for you or gives you terrible advice and then comes to you and says, you know, in the name of the Lord, I think you should do such and such, you might want to be like, mm-hmm. I better hear that from some other sources. But you know, all across the world today, people will use the name of the Lord and, and teach false gospels. Just throwing that out there. All around the world today, people will use the name of God to justify evil. Just because the name of God is, is with it doesn't mean, you know, something. You see this often. It was, it was this week on one of Chris's um, posts that somebody had, you know, talking about the, the Prime Sri Lanka and something. Oh, you know, all religions, you know, people, Christians will do this or that, the other thing. Hey, we need to be really, really clear. The example was using it. Well, well the, you know, the Christians who are part of the KKK, I mean, they did. Whoa, whoa, time out. What? You, you cannot. You cannot hate people like that and then say that you are a Christian because to be a Christian biblically speaking means someone who is like you know a little Christ like like Christ you know in their life a a a, a follower of of Jesus well a, a person who's part of KKK I'm sorry no, not following Jesus. Not following Jesus. You know the the, the I, I use this one on the words that you know the mouse can convince himself that he's an elephant and tell the world that he's an elephant. Doesn't make him an elephant. <laughs> still a mouse. Still a mouse. You know, and and and, the, and the, we have to be evaluated. Jesus says. By your fruits, by their fruits, you will know them. And this is where it gets disturbing. And this is where we have to be really careful. 
because there's a lot of the world today that has become quote-unquote quote unquote Christian, but in a very secular way. And what do I mean by that? You know, for, for generations, you know, in European nations, and you're born and your name is put on the roll of the church. Well, what is that? You know, again, that's not any more real. Now, a person whose name is put there may grow up and, and read the scriptures and believe in Jesus and, and follow him. But we're not talking about the church of Jesus there in its real, full sense. We're talking about a, a, a culture. Now, that culture that has generally agreed or at least has some bounds of right and wrong based on you know the Judeo Christian principles will generally do better off be better off than a nation that has you know rejected that altogether or is based on a different set of principles. There are normally going to be more human rights and more freedoms you know for those people. But let's not kid ourselves and to think in that the you know that that the biggest following in the world, like you know, say Christianity is the biggest religion in the world. Well, yeah, I mean Christianity is the biggest religion, but that's we're not interested in religion. We're interested in what's real, and then when you go to what's real, well, those numbers got a lot smaller. You know, and some groups will go, will be prideful, and they'll go so far, and they'll be like, "Well, we're the only ones that have it right." Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that. I'm saying, you know, everybody who truly follows Jesus has it right. Believes they died on the cross for your sins, rose from the dead, and has submitted themselves, humbled themselves before Him, submitted to His, He is Him as Savior and King. And so there's people from a lot of different groups that are in quote-unquote cultural Christianity that there's individuals that would still meet the, you know, fit the bill, right? That, that would meet those, those, the standard that Jesus has given. But there's a whole lot of gospel, there's a whole, well, it's not a whole lot of gospel, there's, the gospel needs to be preached to a whole lot of Christians because they haven't heard it in order to understand it. People are like, whoa, whoa, what? I mean, that's a great place to begin evangelism is with Christians in churches. And it's a sad, it's a sad thing. And it's, we have to be very careful because there are so many ways to get this wrong. You can get this wrong through license. You can get this wrong through legalism. There are so many different ways to get it wrong. There, the, you know, there is a, a, a narrow path That's one Greg Greg Higgs used to tell us on the on the regular was uh, 
you know, we got this narrow path and there's two big ditches on either side, license and, and legalism, and it's pretty easy to fall in either way. But on either side, you're in a ditch. You don't want to be there. Stay on the road. Stay on the road. There's so many different ways to get it wrong. We have to be steadfast. Now, verse 18. Man, this is, man that's something. You really see in the scripture here the, the, the mind of Saul. You know, I'm just going to hope that the Philistines take him down. So David said to Saul, Who am I and what is my life from our father's family Israel that I should be the son-in-law to the king? But it happened at the time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, that she was given to Adriel, the Amethylite, as a wife. Now Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. So Saul said, I will give her to him, that she may be a snare to him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, You shall be my son-in-law today. Again, we see the purpose, you know, Saul's David, dealing with David is to see David killed. He's even willing to use his daughters to accomplish that purpose. I mean, that's pretty messed up. I mean, there's no way to read that and go, yeah, that sounds good and normal. No, no that's, that's just messed up. That's just disgusting. You know, I mean, it just... It just is. And, and he hears that his, you know, this, the second daughter loves David. So he's kind of like, you know, all the better. So this daughter that I have, I wanted to marry this guy, and I'm hoping that he ends up getting killed. I mean, not really concerned about her heart, is he? You know, not concerned about her well-being. She, at that point, is a... You know, he is so, you see, this is, and this is a problem. When people get wrapped up into sin, they don't even see how terribly wicked what they're doing is. They can't, they can't even see it half the time. It's just like this, sin creates this fog and this, this darkness. And they're just, they're making decisions and they're so, you know, he's solely focused. He's not even thinking about his daughter. Not even thinking about his daughter and what's best for her or what's good for her life. He's solely focused on, in this jealous rage, he's solely focused on the destruction of David. That that's what drives all the decisions. Again, this shows you, you know, the man, don't be jealous in, in this way. And, and don't be so focused on something that's not from the Lord because it, it can destroy you. Now, at this point, Saul has lost all of his character. Any that he had left is, you know, rapidly running out the door. Such a terrible thing. But that she may be a snare to him, we'll see that coming up. Move a little more quickly here. Okay. Verse 22. And Saul commanded his servants, 
communicate with David secretly and say, Look, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now therefore become the king's son-in-law. So Saul's servant spoke these words in the hearing of David, and David said, Does it seem to you a light thing to be a king's son-in-law, saying, I am a poor and lightly esteemed man? And the servants of Saul told him, saying, In this manner David spoke. Then Saul said, This you shall say to David, The king does not desire um, any bride price, but one hundred foreskins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemies. But Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. So when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to become the king's son-in-law. Now the days had not yet expired, and therefore David arose and went with his men, and they killed two hundred men of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins and gave them in full count to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave Michael his daughter as his wife. Now again, this is one of those scenes in the scripture that's a bit disturbing. There's kind of no getting around that, but we do have to take it in, in its context. There is an active war, again, let me just remind us of that. There's an active war between the Philistines um, and the Israelites with many battles um, that are to be, to be fought. Um, and so we have to take it in that, in that context. Um, you know, it's not that, we have to remember, David did not go and just find, oh, well, these are a peaceful people, and I'm going to run in there and slaughter a bunch of men so that I can, you know, fulfill this requirement. Um, it's in the context of war. It's in the context of battle. Um, it's still, I think, rightfully so, makes us uncomfortable. Um, and particularly, I think the reason it makes us uncomfortable, there's... So much of the Old Testament makes us uncomfortable because we're not in a theocracy, okay? And we're, it's a completely different economy, that, in governmental economy that we're in, where, you know, God is not instructing us today to go and do things like, like this, but God had his reasons for elevating Israel and for, you know, blessing them. Um, and for defending them against their, their enemies. When we read Jesus who tells us, the reason we have a problem with this is because of the instructions that Jesus has given to us. Does that make sense? If you just have the Old Testament, and that's all you had, then your, your prayers and your, your thoughts about conflict and war and all these things would be very different than they are, you know, in this, in this economy where Jesus then fulfills the prophecies and he tells us to love our enemies. Okay. That's a context. Now, that being said, I want to be careful not to eliminate any possibility for just war today and for people to be able to defend themselves um, when they're being attacked and their families and you know, everything that comes with that. We don't really have time to go into to all of that currently. But we, we operate from a position of peace. You know, followers of Jesus are never, I mean, you can make an argument that we can defend our, you can make, I think, a, a reasonable argument 
that if people are coming into your community and trying to slaughter everybody, that you have a right to defend yourself and your family. Okay, like you, you can make a case for that. You cannot make a case for followers of Jesus in any context being aggressive in terms of we just want that and so we're going to go kill those people and take it. There's nothing in the, in the, there's nothing in the teachings of Jesus that are going to leave any sort of door cracked for that. It's just not there. It's just not there at all. And so, you know, thank God for that. Praise God for that. But because of that, even when there are just wars, we can still, many of us can still get queasy. When Israel is defending itself against the Philistines, we can still get, eh, I don't like this at all. And what happens here? I get you. I get that. But here we have it, and we have to again remember it in its context. Now, that doesn't mean that everything that's done here is right. See, sometimes the scriptures explicitly tell us, this is what happened, and it was wrong. Other times, it's implied, okay, because you, why? Because you have the Torah, you have the Old Testament law, and you know, you know, a person who knew the first five books could read things in the history and go, well, that shouldn't have been done. Or sometimes there's not much commentary. There's not really a commentary here. Because I, I, what we don't see and what I would question, my questions would be, David, did you just want to do this or did you pray about it? Because in the big picture of the story, it doesn't seem that he should have married her. I'm just going to throw that out there. In the big picture of the story, it doesn't seem that he should have married her. And therefore, if he wasn't going to marry her, he doesn't need to go the extra step. I'm not saying he, sh- he needed to kill other people in battle. Like, you can't get away from that. Like, to defend Israel from the attacks of the Philistines and to have victory over the Philistines, he needed to go kill Philistines. Like, that's, I'm sorry, you can't eliminate it. From the, from the historical context, and that just is what it is. He had to go kill them. He doesn't have to go and take off 200 foreskins, and I mean, that's a, you know, we don't have to think about that very much. He doesn't have to do that if he's not doing something to try to prove whatever to get this broad, right? So that's the part that you can question. I think you can rightly question that. Should he have married her? Should he have taken these foreskins in order to do that? I think you can make a, a case for that. I mean, the men were already dead. This is, you know, but, okay. I mean, it's just gross. All right, it's gross. We, we, admit, we, all, we all get a little queasy. We're talking about... Moving on, all right. So, but, we have, but again, this is why, this is classic... Example of why in One Hope Church we go straight through because we can't miss the part where David takes 200 foreskins off Philistines. I mean, you just got to do it. You know, just there it is. If I'm uncomfortable, you're uncomfortable. All right, there we go. <laughs> there, there we go. All right, now, yeah, verse 28. 
moving, moving forward here faster. Thus Saul, Saul and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him. And Saul was still more afraid of David. So Saul became David's enemy continually. And then the princes of the Philistines went out to war. And so it was whenever they went out that David behaved more wisely than all the servants of Saul, that he became, his name became highly esteemed. So the more God gives David victory, the more Saul's hatred for David grows, the more of an enemy he becomes. We're going to move even faster because I want to get through part of chapter 19 this morning so we can kind of, I'm just going to be honest with you, get through this section, this section of the story, and there's some great stuff in 20 that I really want to get to on Sunday, this next Sunday. So we're going to plow right through this. Now Saul told Jonathan his son and all his servants to put David to death. But Jonathan, Saul's son, greatly delighted in David. So Jonathan told David, saying, Saul, my father, is seeking to put you to death. Now, therefore, please be on guard in the morning and stay in a secret place and hide yourself. I will go out and stand by my father in the field where you are, and I will speak with my father about you, and I'll find out anything I will tell you. Just, again, Jonathan's, Jonathan's love. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul his father and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan, and Saul swore, As the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David and Jonathan reported to him all these things and Jonathan brought David to Saul and he was in his presence as before. So there Jonathan is able to you know kind of talk his father off the ledge and and bring a little bit of peace to the situation and brings Jonathan back in but it doesn't last long. Verse 8 And there was war again and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul, and he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with a spear, but he eluded Saul, so that he stuck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. And Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. And Michael took an image and laid it in the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to David, she said, He is sick. And then Saul sent the messenger to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with a pillow of goat's hair at its head. And Saul said to Michael, Why have you deceived me and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul, he said to me, let me go, why should I kill you? Um, so we'll stop there for a minute. Uh, that's, man, again, it's a twisted, sad, you know, story um, there. As, you know, Saul sends, you know, even trying to kill David in his own home, where, you know, to arrest him there, where his wife, I mean, his daughter, Saul's daughter is there as David's wife. Again, that shows you, you know, a terrible thing. But also that part about 
Um, Saul said, you know, she'd be a snare to him. And this is, again, where I go, I don't, I don't believe, based on the full, fullness of what we know in First and Second Samuel, that David should have married her. Because that image is a, is a, a household idol. Be clear about that, what that is. It's from the Chaldeans, or other people grouped there. These were common, and, and particularly, they, you know, women would have them in their, in their homes because they were for fertility as a, um, a superstitious thing about fertility. Okay? And David allows it. That's another thing, where it's not like clear here, well, David, you sinned, you know, by allowing it, but he certainly has to have, you know, some responsibility, I believe, here, because it's in his house. It's in his house. Well, I mean, it's there. And so, what are you going to do with that? And again, it's, you know, David, as we see throughout the scriptures, isn't perfect. And he, you know, he, and he doesn't always make the right decision. At the same time, there is something about his heart that God sees as fundamentally different than what he sees about Saul's heart. And we'll, again, that gets more complicated um, as time goes on, but we do believe that to be true. So now you have the daughter of Saul deceiving Saul in order, because she loves David and wants him to live, or at least loves him at this point. I don't know that we can say she always loves him, but does at this point. And so he, he escapes out through the window. Um, their, their house was likely in the city wall. Remember in Jericho, where Rahab you know, lets the spies down out through the window of the house, and then they, they flee out. That's the same sort of picture I think we have here, um, where he, he then escapes. So let's finish um, in verse 18. Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Naoth. And it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Naoth and Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David, and when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing as head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. And it was, when it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah, and came to the great wall, great well that is in Seku, and he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Naoth and Ramah. And he went there to Naoth and Ramah, and the Spirit came upon him as well. And he prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. And he too stripped off his outer garments, and he too prophesied before Samuel, and lay naked all that day and all that night. And thus it said, Is Saul also among the prophets? Now that is a very interesting portion of scripture, there's one key point there that we, have to under, that we have to understand in order to, there's a couple key points we have to understand in order to make sense of it. One is that these messengers are being sent to take David. What's the point in taking David? To kill him. So these messengers are given this job. You've got to go and arrest 
at minimum here, it's arresting. I don't know if they're going to kill him there or take him back to Saul and then have him killed there. But to take him is the point. So on their way, they become overcome by the Spirit of God and they start telling the truth. That's what it means. You know, they're prophesying. They are telling the truth about God and Saul and David and everything else. They've got to tell the truth. And so the next group is set. They've got to tell the truth. The third group is set. They've got to tell the truth. Reminiscent, it reminds us of uh, Balaam back in the book of Numbers when you know he's been hired to, to curse Israel and he can say, Well, I can only say what God tells me to say. And so those end up being blessings instead of cursings. You see what's happening here? Like these are they're sent to take David, and all they can do is tell the truth, and they're powerless to take him. And even Saul himself has to do so. And this nakedness in the scripture, to us it sounds really weird, but there's a, there's a shame element that comes with this. It's like basically he's, you know, remember Noah, he's a, you know, he, he was uncovered and that was a shameful thing. And, you know, the, the sons walked, that didn't see him naked, you know, walked backwards and covered so they wouldn't uncover his naked or wouldn't see him in that uncovered state. There, there's a difference in how they viewed those things. And so now he's got to tell the truth and, and they're ashamed. So God puts them in their place is ultimately the end of it. And they're not allowed to touch David. Now there's something about that that we should be reminded of with the religious leaders in Israel in the times of Jesus. They sought to kill him on numerous occasions. They sought to. But they were powerless to do so because the will of God had not been accomplished yet and they were not allowed to see him harmed until the right time came that Jesus would go to the cross and die for us. So with David, they just weren't allowed to get him. And we're going to see that throughout the scriptures. There's many times where you know, attempts are made on his life, but God you know, overcomes the odds. Like Just in terms of human sense, David should have died many times. But God protects him because he's got a purpose in terms of setting him on the throne and, and so forth. With Jesus, people want to kill him or not allowed to, to touch him either until it's a time. But the difference is this. Jesus, in his first coming, wasn't coming to, to set up fully his, his kingship. He was coming to give himself as a ransom. He was giving, coming for the purpose of being our Savior to die in our place on the cross. But we should, be, we should take this and remember this morning that when Jesus returns as King, there will be no force that can stop him or touch him or kill him. But he will establish his kingdom in its fullness he will judge. He will do away. And the scripture tells us there's not going to be more death, pain, sin. Wipe away every tear from our eyes. And we're thankful for that because we recognize what we see in these chapters this morning. We see sin and the results of sin and the pains of sin and the pains of living in rebellion against God. And the consequences that all flow from that, 
and that God has to intervene in, in order, if God doesn't intervene to protect the innocent, that they, they will be slaughtered. And so, we live in this broken and fallen world that desperately needs a king to establish justice. And that true king is rightfully Jesus Christ who will sit on his throne forever and ever. And we're thankful this morning for that as we take the bread and the cup, we give thanks. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us and that you're good to us. We're thankful, Lord, even now we're thankful to live in the day and time we live in. That we're not in the old sacrificial system, but that the one true great sacrifice has been made on our behalf. So Lord, help us to pursue peace as we are able in our personal relationships be people who create environments of peace, people who seek peace, And Lord, help us to be people who have character, integrity, and who won't sacrifice it for temporary gain. Lord, as we come to you this table, we ask that you would work in our hearts and minds this morning. We're reminded of the cost of our salvation and your great love for us. We give you praise. In your name, Jesus. Amen.